Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Well, we're in the second week of a series that we're calling Embracing Exile. Uh, And really what we're doing is we're using the biblical metaphor of exile to narrate where the Western church is. Uh, That is to say that the church uh, used to be in our culture and in our time in a position of power and influence to shape culture. uh, And that is becoming less and less true uh, and less and less the case. And so we're just kind of using exile as a metaphor uh, for how to kind of talk about and narrate where the church is uh, in the West or even specifically in America. Uh, and, and really one of the central themes or one of the central arguments of the series is that, that's, that this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we spent last week talking about how when, uh, when the people of God were sent into exile, that God was up to something, that God was doing something. Uh, and, and if you'll remember, we, we kind of had, we had the, the, the uh, circle of the life uh, of Israel that starts in exile and then land and then kingship and then division. And if you kind of go to the top, where the kingship, that's the most comfortable time, but it's not very fruitful. Uh, and then when you kind of get to division and exile, that's uncomfortable. It can be disorienting. It can be really uh, difficult, but often that's the most fruitful time uh, in the people of God, that God is doing something and stirring something in people uh, through those kind of times where we feel maybe a little bit disoriented. Uh, so one of the central claims of the series is that exile isn't necessarily a bad thing, uh, even though it can be very uncomfortable and often even difficult. Uh, Ever since Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome in 323 AD, the church has had an impulse to run or to help run the empire. Uh, But the problem is that if you try to run an empire, you eventually end up looking and acting like it. And so one of the opportunities we have in exile is to rediscover the uniqueness uh, and our own uniqueness of what it means to be the people of God. Uh, In other words, we get to untether our faith from nationalism uh, and discern in new and fresh ways what it means to be the people of God in today's time and place. Uh, So today we're going to continue our invitation to embrace exile by looking at a a couple of passages from 1 Peter. Uh, So let's begin in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. should be up on the screen. Uh, And it says this. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. Isn't that awesome? That's just like the greeting uh, before he ever gets into anything. And I wonder, like, we've kind of lost this, right? Like, uh, like, most of my text messages start something like, hey, You know, like what if we started adopting this and just like text messages, like you're texting your wife and you're like, to my beloved, to whom I have committed my life and my whole self, you are the bright shining star, you know, like you go on and on and then you're like, "Uh, what do you want to do for lunch, right? (laughs) Like I, I think, I think we could like totally begin to just adopt like a more biblical way of addressing one another uh, and I think it would be awesome. So uh, maybe try that with somebody this week and see how it goes. Uh, but what's interesting is that, is that Peter uh, refers to his audience as exiles. Now, uh, I chose this translation. This is not the NIV, which I typically uh, use. This is the NRSV, which is actually my personal fra- favorite, but it's not very you know, popular, so we just go with the NIV. But, um, 
But, but I chose it because it uses this word exile. Now, other translations uh, refer to this, or other translations say strangers or foreigners. But it's really interesting that Peter refers to his audience as exiles. Uh, he's writing to Christians that have been spread out over several countries. Uh, that's what the dispersion means. Uh, but Peter understands, however, that even though they've been spread out, that they are, in fact, exiles. And, and he's not talking to them, and he's not referring to them as exiles because they have, uh, they have immigrated from where they now live or to where they now live, but rather he calls them exiles because they hold uh, a dual citizenship, that by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ, they are now given a dual citizenship. They are inhabitants of their own country or district, but they are also by faith citizens in God's new world, or what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. And so they are at the very same time citizens of a particular place, but also exiles. Uh, in other words, uh, Peter employs the very same metaphor that we are using here. Uh, or perhaps we are employing the very same metaphor that Peter uses here. That's probably more accurate. Uh, you may remember from this summer that we talked to, actually talked about what it means to have dual citizenship, how most of us are citizens of the USA, but we also hold citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And it's important not to conflate the two and make them the same thing. And it's also important to live with a single allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. So we have this dual, allegiance, we have this dual citizenship, but a single allegiance. Uh, and we, we kind of talk this way because the Bible actually talks this way quite a bit, uh, talking about a single allegiance to the kingdom of Christ, yet living as God's unique people in your place, wherever you happen to, to live. And this is precisely what Peter's doing here. You all are exiles, not because of that you happen to immigrate to where you live, but because you hold this dual citizenship. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can't be patriotic. We can, but however, as the people of God, our allegiance belongs only to God and his kingdom. And so Peter addresses this crowd as exiles that, have been dis that are dispersed. In other words, they find themselves in a variety of places, but they're, they're, they're the same. Their status is the same, this dual citizenship. But then he addresses them... Um, according to their new identity and faith. And I think this is what makes the address so powerful, is that he's actually calling out who they actually are, their true identity in Christ. He's naming it and he's calling it out. You are those who have been set apart. You have been sanctified for obedience to Jesus and his way. You have been sprinkled with the blood of the Messiah. In other words, I want you to notice that he does not refer to them according to any of the old categories. That he doesn't name this group of dual citizenship exiles by their ancestry, by their moral background, by their social status, by their economic status. Uh, Peter ignores all of those kind of old categories and he addresses them by their new identity, by faith in Christ. He reminds them of who they are according to their faith. That when you become a citizen in the kingdom of God, if the community is functioning properly, then all of those old categories go away. I want you to hear that. That when you become a citizen in the kingdom of God, if the community in which you are a part of is functioning properly, then all of the old categories that we tend to define each other by, separate each other by, those go away. And instead, what Peter does is he addresses them specifically by who they are in Christ. 
that could be end of sermon, and all of you would praise, right? <laughs> but, like, but, but if we really understood that, if we really grabbed a hold of that, that would fundamentally change the way in which we interact with one another. It would probably have a huge impact on how we do church. There's all sorts of implications of what Peter is doing, naming their new identity in Christ and all the old categories go away. Uh, but Peter actually continues to build on this, and so I want to move to chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, and this is our text for this morning. Uh, it says this. He goes on to say, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is Peter still addressing that same group of exiles that are kind of gathered or just that are dispersed all around. It's, he's talking to that same group and he's saying, now you are this. Again, speaking to their new identity, to their uniqueness of who they are in Christ. And he says, you are a chosen race. It's interesting, he says that essentially you are a new ethnos. And even though the, this, this new ethnicity, this new race is made up of all kinds of cultures and ethnicity, we yet still find our unity in Christ, not in our uniformity. You see, a lot of times when we think about unity, we think about unity as it relates to our uniformity. That is that we are united based on the fact that we are the same. And this is actually how, how culture tends to, to gather around, right? Uh, in fact, you notice this. We do this naturally even in the church when it comes to life groups. <laughs> life groups, we kind of like tend to just go with people that are, in our, that are like us in our same stage of life, same kind of levels of interest. Like we tend to just kind of gravitate toward that. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that unless we just recognize and admit out loud that the unity that we have in Christ supersedes unity on any other basis. So, so that's essentially what, what Peter is saying is that we are a chosen race, a brand new ethnos made up of all kinds of cultures and ethnicities because our unity in Christ supersedes everything else. It, it supersedes all those old identities and those old markers. That the body of Christ is to be unique because God gathers a people to himself that otherwise would have no reason to get together. Right? That God gathers to, him, to himself a people that otherwise would have no reason to get together. This is why churches need to work really, really hard to have a diversity of people and ages and income levels and skin colors and all of that. Because it's really not hard to gather a group of people who are all the same. That's called a country club or a concert or a sporting event, right? I mean, you, like, you go down to Coors Field and, and you're just like, you have u immediate unity with all those people because we're all like, go Rocks, you know? Yeah, we're going for the Rockies, right? Not many baseball fans. Man, that's, that's sad. Come on, I guess football has started too, so. Uh, but like, right as, like, people are excited about football and I'm just like, baseball's getting exciting right, right this time of year, you know? Uh, so... So it's not hard to get together a, a group of people uh, that have uniformity. What's difficult is getting together a group of people that have true unity. 
And part of the biblical vision of the church is that we would be a chosen race, a group of people brought together by the Spirit of God from all different backgrounds because our unity in Christ supersedes any of those old identities and those old markers. You with me? Now he goes on to say that you are royal priesthood. Uh, and of course, Peter's drawing from the Old Testament practice and, and, and role of the priest. And the role of the priest, uh, if you're familiar, if you kind of read the Old Testament, you can kind of get a sense of this, but the, the role of the priest was to be a mediator between the people and God. And, and so the high priest, once a, there was all kinds of like, there were levels of priests and different roles, and, but generally speaking, what the priest was to do was to mediate between the people and God. And so generally speaking, you could, you could even frame it this way, that the role of the priest was to present the world to God. To, to say, here, here we are, and oftentimes that's here we are in our sin, in our brokenness, in the ways in which we have fallen short. We present, to the world to, we, we present the world to God and we say, here we are. <laughs> this is the best we can do. But, but then the role of the priest is also then, after looking at the people and saying, God, this is who we are. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. He also then churns and represents God to the world and says, you have been forgiven and you are loved deeply. And so the role of the priest, generally speaking, was present the world to God and present God back to the world. And what Peter does is he picks up on this imagery and he says to the church, you are a royal priesthood. Now in the Protestant church, we have this thing and you maybe you've heard this phrase, but we have this thing that, called the priesthood of all believers, that we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes we misunderstand this to mean that we don't need a priest, which is not at all the heart of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers is that you are priests to one another. It's not like, oh, we no longer need the role of the priest. It's that we get to be priests to one another, that we get to present God to one another. Do you sense how the, the community that's being pointed of and pointed to and spoken of, that there are times in our life when we need a priest, and sometimes it could be someone in the role or the office of pastor, other times it could be sitting someone, it could be someone sitting next to you or across the aisle as we are priests to one another. Does that make sense? My guess is that many of you have probably had the experience where you were in a time, in a place of need in your life, and, and, and I hope, I hope that the pastor was there, but guess what, we're not perfect. <laughs> and there's some times where you, are, you need a pastoral presence, and we either aren't there or can't be there or whatever, but someone was there. There was a priesthood of all believers, someone else was there presenting the love of God, the presence of God to you in a meaningful way. To mediate between God and his people that we are to offer ourselves and our lives and the world to God. And then here's the important part, then we are to offer God back to the world and to one another. You are a royal priesthood. And then he says that you are a holy nation. And this is where I want to, to camp out a little bit. Peter says, you are a holy nation. The word holy means set apart or separate. And too often, I want you to hear me here, too often we understand it to mean isolation. 
We take this word holy, which literally means separate or called out, set apart. But often we understand that, and let me, let me qualify that. We misunderstand that to mean isolation. As though the purpose of the holiness were to isolate ourselves from those people and be proud of how holy we are. Think about that. Think about holiness as isolation. This makes no sense. If holiness were isolation, then we just, we isolate ourselves from whatever we deem to be unclean or unworthy or gross or dirty or whatever, and then we, then we think about how, how proud we are of ourselves because we're not like that. <laughs> no, this is not the purpose of holiness. This is not at all what God is talking about when he talks about being set apart. God has separated his people and calls them to be holy. But I want you to hear me today. What God separates, he fills. What he fills, he blesses. And this makes all the difference. What God separates, he fills. What God fills, he blesses. And this makes all the difference. So let me explain. I can already see the confused look on your faces. <laughs> Genesis 1.1 says, how many things go right back to Genesis 1.1? Like every single week. I'm like, yeah, this passage and then Genesis 1. Right? But here we are. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. This first two verses of the Bible contain some really fun words that I want to teach you today. The first word is tohu. Okay? That's pretty fun, huh? Tohu. Not tofu. Tohu. Tohu. And then the second word is bohu. That's pretty fun, huh? Tohu and bohu. So if I, if I was a pastor who like kind of liked that kind of stuff, I would say, everyone say tohu. But I won't ask you to do that. So, because when I'm in your chair... I hate when pastors do that. <laughs> so, so tohu and bohu. Tohu means formless, and bohu means void, other formless void. These two Hebrew words, tohu and bohu, are twin words. They always appear together. They always appear together. They are inseparable twins, tohu and bohu. And they represent chaos, really. I mean, they, they represent uh, the things that can and often do uh, break into our lives and churn everything upside down, this, this chaotic thing. Like some of you maybe this week had some tohu and bohu going on, right? It's just, it's when things come into our lives and churn everything upside down. And, and most often in scripture, these chaotic forces are actually symbolized by water. In other words, the ancient Hebrew mind did not like water at all. That's true. Large bodies of water in the ancient Hebrew mind were seen as places of chaos and destruction. Uh, which is why, as you read many of the Psalms, they talk about and declare God's authority over the waters. Um, this, is, this is also why uh, in John's vision of new creation in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, uh, there's no sea, there's no ocean in God's vision, or John's vision of the new creation. Uh, this does not mean that new creation is Kansas or Colorado, right? <laughs> this does not mean that the new creation is landlocked. But rather, it's a way of saying that in God's uh, new creation, tohu and bohu will be defeated once and for all. Okay? You with me? So, what goes on is this, what goes on in Genesis 1 after this is this, uh, we'll call it 
poetic narrative, right? It kind of reads like a, like a narrative, but it has like tons of poetic elements. So this poetic narrative that tells us all about creation, and we're given the following order of creation. Now, I had a busy week. Otherwise, I would have a visual for you, and this would be so much better, uh, but I just didn't get it done. How's that level for, of honesty for you? So, so do your best to stick with me. Here's the order of creation that we're given in Genesis chapter one. Light, sky and sea, land, the moon, stars, and sun, birds and fish, animals and humans, and then God takes a break. Okay? That's creation. And I want, what I want you to see and what I want you to notice is that the first three days were works of separation. God separates light from dark. On the second day, he separates the waters from the sky. And on the third day, he separates the waters from the land. So all three days, the first three days, are works of separation. In other words, in the first three days of creation, God is taking on tohu and showing it who's boss. With me? And so through the works of separation, God works to bring form out of formlessness. Remember, tohu is formlessness. And what God is doing is he's taking on, he's attacking like Rocky style. He's taking on tohu and he's bringing form out of formlessness. He, he, he contains, he controls, he defeats Tohu in the first three days of creation. He's doing that through works of separation. Remember, what God separates, though, God fills. Some of you are like, what was that little, or what was that whole long introduction? This seems to be the whole meat of it. Remember when I said what God separates, he fills, what he fills, he blesses? This is that, okay? In the second three days of creation, I thought you all would be way more excited about this, so I'll just keep flapping my arms and trying harder. So, so the, th- the second three days of creation, God takes on bohu. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> he takes on bohu, you know, same thing. He's, gonna, he's like defeating bohu, which is the emptiness. And he does that. He's taking on the emptiness with works of filling. And here's what's just like, just blows your mind about the creation narrative is that they actually correspond with one another. That is, the very thing that he separates in days one, two, and three, he then fills on four, five, and six. So the light and the darkness that were separated on day one are filled with the moon, stars, and sun on day four. The sea and the sky that are separated on day two are filled with birds and fish on day five. The land, the waters that were separated from the land, so the land of day three is then filled with animals and humankind on day six. (sighs) That sound you hear? That's your mind blowing, right? It's just like unbelievable. And so then, what God separates, God fills. What God fills, God blesses. So then on the seventh day, at the end of it all, In Genesis 2, 3, it says, so God blessed the seventh day, and he called it holy. You see, from the very beginning, the way that God has been bringing about creation is by separating and then filling and then blessing. What God does is he, I want you to think about this. God gets, God puts tohu and bohu in their place at creation. 
But remember, if you read the biblical narrative, tohum bohu come raging back. Chaos comes right back into the narrative very, very quickly. And so they come raging back in the form of sin, in the form of autonomy from God, and that kind of all reaches its crescendo at, at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And you're like, by Genesis 11, it's like we have got a gigantic problem on our hands. What is God going to do? And what do you read about in Genesis chapter 12? The calling of Abraham. What does God do with Abraham? God confronts these chaotic forces once again, and he calls Abraham and Sarah to separate themselves from their home. And if they will do that, he will fill their lives with his presence. And then out of a covenant relationship, the whole world will be blessed through them. And so right from the very beginning, when sin sort of meets this crescendo in Genesis 11, and the question is, is God going to do anything? What is God going to do? God separates, and then he fills, and he promises to bless. Oh, come on. That's so good. That's so good. In other words, the call of Abraham is the beginning of God's whole redemption project for the entire world. And here's what I want to say to you today, that I believe that God is working to bring about new creation in the same way that he brought about creation. That is by separation, by filling, and by blessing. And I want to relate that directly to us. Because I think that separation, filling, and blessing is a really great framework for thinking about God's work in the church and among the people of God. God has called us out. He has separated us, but not for the purpose of isolation, not for the purpose of us saying, oh, oh, the whole rest of the world is just gross, stay away. Look how holy, not for the purpose of, look how holy we are. God has called us out. He has separated us. But then he promises and has filled us with his spirit. So that we might be a redemptive blessing in the world. Do you see what I'm saying here? That, that if we understand holiness to be isolation, we have grossly missed the point. Uh, in, in fact, uh, this is a side note. I, have, I don't have any, no this is a side note as in I don't have any notes on this. So, so here we go. Uh, think about this. Like the, the, a key question to ask is what is the contagious agent? Is it sin or is it holiness? And as you read the biblical narrative, the, the understanding that people had is that it was that which was unclean, that which was sinful is a contagious thing. So if I am made clean, then I have to stay away from everything unclean, right? You read this all over scripture. This is how people understood it at first. And then Jesus enters the scene, the Holy One, the Son of God, the Messiah. And, and all the Pharisees are, going, are saying, ooh, don't touch them, they're gross, right? I mean, that's, that maybe they didn't sound like that. But, but that's what they're saying. And then what does Jesus do? He touches them and heals them. What is the contagious agent? Is it holiness or is it sin? It is holiness. Holiness is the contagious agent. And that's what I want us to understand. Holiness does not call us to isolation, does not put us in an isolation chamber so that we stay clean. Holiness calls us to enter into that which is unclean in order that it might be redeemed. 
This is precisely what Jesus did. And if we miss this point, then we have missed the whole point of being called out, separated, made holy. Because guess what? God has gathered a people around himself around which we have maybe not all uniformity, but we do have unity that supersedes all the old categories. He has called us out, filled us with his spirit so that we might be a redemptive blessing in the world. That's what it's about. That's what I want us to capture. That's it. That's the whole message right there. And I probably have some more things to say, but if you don't hear anything else, that's what I want you to hear. Actually, I do think there's a problem. And it's a big one. The problem is that many of us are so steeped in individualism that we have trouble thinking of the church as a people to whom we belong. That is to say that we seem to have lost a sense of the church being a called out people who are invited to reflect the nature and character of God in the world. And instead, the church for many because of rugged individualism, has become an institution that can help guarantee my, that I be happy in this life and make it to heaven when I die. And I don't want to be too in your face here, but, but isn't that true? Like so many times, we, because of rugged individualism, we see the church as an institution that can help make me happy here and, and sort of give me some afterlife insurance. When, when really the biblical vision of the church is for, for us to be God's unique people. And that when you, when you enter into faith in Jesus Christ, you are also at the very same time invited to enter into a community of people to whom you can belong that has a particular mission in the world. You are invited into something much larger than yourself. But how quickly we lose that when we just think of ourselves as individual consumers. And I want to be careful here, but a lot of reasons, the, a lot of times the reason the pastors burn out is because they signed up for a movement and ended up managing a Walmart for Jesus. And, and so I just, wanted, I, I just want to say, like, I... I this morning, I just want us to capture the biblical vision of who we are and why we do what we do. And that is, is that we are a group of people who've been separated, filled with the Spirit, and called to be a blessing to the world. That holiness is not an individual enterprise. Holiness is not something that, an, an isolation chamber in which we put ourselves. The people of God are to be a blessing to the world. We are to be an alternative society of sorts, a way where we demonstrate and live a way of life together that reflects the beauty of Christ. We, we are to be a countercultural people who embody the upside-down kingdom of Christ. Maybe the biblical words are the best, as Peter would remind us today, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And my prayer and desire for this church is that we would capture to greater and greater degrees 
what it means to live as the unique people of God in this time and in this place. And I want us to have a vision that is larger than this particular church, uh, but I also want us to have a vision for this particular church, that, that the way in which we belong to the global body of Christ is in local communities. And so in this local community, I hope that we will capture the vision, uh, the biblical vision of what it means to be God's people. Uh, but I also hold two convictions that in order to live as faithfully as God's unique people in the world, uh, we're going to need a story to root ourselves in. Uh, and then we need uh, certain practices that will help us live out this calling. Um, and we're going to talk about that for the next two weeks. Some of you are like, oh, here he goes some more. Don't worry, I'm done. <laughs> for the next two weeks a story to root ourselves in, and practices that will help us be and live as the people of God. Sound good? All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for your challenging words today, for the ways in which you have spoken to us. Uh, I pray, God, that you would uh, just allow these words to stir in our hearts. Uh, and God, if I um, have said anything that is not true or in line with your spirit, Lord, would you uh, correct it in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, but Lord, if I have said something uh, that would be pleasing to you, may it be solidified in our hearts. Um, may it be solidified in my own heart of what it means uh, to be your people in this time and place. Uh, so God, thanks for your goodness. Be with us as we gather around the table today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.